entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Temptation never came in a more dangerous package. I don't believe you. Explosively new. Ernest Hemingway's The Killers. The wheels of fate challenge the killers who reach across today's great speedways to trap their victims as they roar across the screen in their Cobras, Ferraris, Maseratis at 160 miles per hour. Only Hemingway could have conceived it. Only today's screen could make the characters come so vividly alive. Lee Marvin as Charlie. Who paid him $25,000 for each killing? Well, I gotta find out what makes a man decide not to run. Why all of a sudden he'd rather die. Angie Dickinson as Sheila. She knew more than one way to kill a man. John Cassavetes as Johnny North who boasted there was nothing that moved that he couldn't handle. And Sheila moved. You have a better idea? Unconditional surrender. Ronald Reagan as Browning, who planned a million-dollar heist and got more than he bargained for. You get back to the hotel and stay there. I like it here. Well, I can change that in a hurry. Clue Gilliger as Lee. With or without a pistol, he was deadly as a cobra. Mickey, you will tell us everything. The way he's got it planned, there'll be just the two of you in the getaway car and more than a million dollars. What are you doing? I'm going to get to them before they get to me. No. I want to set you straight, but you got it all wrong. This is no game. Now I want the truth, the whole truth. I'll help you. God, you're going out. I want to express. Do you understand that? Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hi, everybody. This is Bob Barsha with Fox Sports. Normally, I'm at the racetrack with the Barrett-Jackson auctions for television. But if I'm not, I'm going to be listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I hope you will, too. Welcome for tuning in to Nostalgia Radio Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Bring your computers and Google Channel 1340.com. You can see us live here in the studio. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreetMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out our website, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, where you can listen to all, let's see, 12 years worth of radio show interviews. How about that? Good evening, Bobby. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. That would be 613 shows. 
613 shows, 613 shows with some of the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports and music. That's pretty good. Yes, it is. It is. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing well here. I avoided the uh, tornado. So, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, we got uh, bad weather coming in and out all over the place, but uh, we're we're hanging in there pretty good. And our radio tower is still standing, and we're coming in loud and clear, right, Bobby? All three of them, yes. <laughs> all three of them. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, we have a fantastic guest for you this evening and uh and and this is going to be a really 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 good interview i am really looking forward to this so to get going on the show what bobby's going to do is going to fire up the stereo he's going to call our guests and we're going to be right back with an amazing interview and i think you'll all be thrilled to listen to this gentleman because he is uh part of one of the winningest racing teams in the uh last uh decade here uh, for the good old United States. So, uh, Bobby, go ahead. Let's play a little uh, Eagles. How about a little Outlaw Man? I think that sounds good. Here we are. Long <laughs> long version, but here we are. Okay. You tune in to Nostalgia Getting Cards. We'll set that out for you back. Indianapolis 500 winner, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back. We're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our very, very special guest for the the evening. This gentleman is the managing director for Ganassi Racing, this year's Indy 500 winning team. I'm delighted to welcome the show, Mike Hall. Mike, how are you doing this evening? Oh, great. Thank, thank, thank you very much. So, Mike, you just came off this uh, spectacular weekend. Uh, Memorial Day race, Indy 500. And uh, it was a very, very interesting last few minutes of the race. Tell us a little bit about it. And I'm sure you guys, you and Chip and everybody else, were on pins and needles. 
Well, uh, yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, the timing for the call is great. Our, our, tonight's program is actually really, really good. Um, great Indy 500. Uh, we had five race cars uh, all qualified in the uh, the final Sunday qualifying day, poll day. Uh, Twelve cars in the top 12. I'm sorry, five cars in the top 12. Four cars in the top six. Uh, and uh, all held their own during the race at uh, during the 500 uh, on Sunday. So at the very end now, let's see, we had uh, Jimmy Johnson races for you guys, and he had a crash, right? Or no, it was, yeah, Jimmy Johnson crashed the wall, right? At the last uh, five laps, something like that? Yeah. Is that what it was? Yes, he did. And right? then? Yes, very very end of the race, he did. Uh, unfortunately, he did. Uh, he was running well on Sunday. Led, He was actually led some of the laps toward the end. Uh, our, our driver, Marcus Erickson, who won the race, uh, ended up winning uh, after that crash or leading after that crash and winning the race. Tony Kanaan, who, who drives for us, uh, was third in the race. Uh, so... We had two really, really good, uh, good, good contenders there at the end of the race, and uh, Marcus won the race. So you guys have had um, what five now? Is that six IndyCar vi- victories, right? I think now over the last uh, seven or eight years Chip or ten years. Race. Yeah, Chip and Ashley, Yeah, that, that's 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 almost correct. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> no, it's okay. That's yeah, okay. Chip Ganassi Racing as a company has won five. Chip Ganassi five. is a partner with Pat Patrick uh, with Emerson Fittipaldi driving, and that's a sixth win for Chip as a co-owner. So oh, Chip okay. Six, Chip Ganassi Racing as a as a team as a company has had five uh, victories. The first one in two thousand with Juan Mont- Montoya, two two thousand and eight with Scott Dixon. 2010 and 12 with Dario Franchetti, and now 2022 uh, with Marcus Erickson. I want to um, go through a few things here. So as managing director, now you started with Canassi, I think, what was 1992, somewhere around in there, early 90s? In, in 1992, I started uh, working for Chip, yes. Okay. And then so... in. Working with with Chip when you started out, what was what was kind of like your your duties and responsibilities? You came on as um, what, what what was the level of your uh, position? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, there, there was a, a manager, a general manager named Tom Anderson, um, mm-hmm. who was uh, managing the team itself, uh, both the competition and uh, administration in those days. Uh, I was hired as a competition director. Uh, because Chip, what he wanted to do was be in a position uh, uh, right at that point to run two race cars in the CART championship, the IndyCar series, it was called CART in those days. And so my my responsibility was to uh, get everything ready on the competition side to be able to effectively run two race cars. And uh, when I came to work for Chip, the two drivers uh, driving for him at that point were Eddie Cheever and uh, Robbie Gordon. Oh wow! Um, and so I, I just work hard to uh, develop the, the manpower side, the competition side, to be able to effectively run two Indy cars. That was uh, my first responsibility. Um, became a team manager for Chip Ganassi Racing uh, 
Uh, two years after that, uh, we as a team won our first race in 1994 with Michael Andretti, who had come back from McLaren Formula One. He was actually a Ayrton Senna's teammate in 93 in Formula One and came back to the United States to race in the IndyCar Series in 94. We won two races that year and uh, have, run, have won well over 100 IndyCar races since then. That's pretty. That's pretty sensational. That really is. I mean, that is uh, um, teamwork, as I as I put it. Um, as a managing director now, so what all does that encompass within the Tenassi organization? Well, it's uh, well, it's certainly all encompassing now. Uh, an MD or managing director and on our team. Uh, I suppose the short version, the short answer to that is that. Uh, my responsibilities include the over the oversee of everything that goes on with running four cars in the IndyCar Championship. We ran five at Indy in the Indy 500, and then we run two uh, Rolex sports cars, Cadillac uh, powered prototype cars, DPI cars in the IMSA Championship in North America, and then we also run one car in the Extreme E Series, which is a global series. It's an all-electric SUV off-road vehicle that runs uh, five races globally. Uh, its next race is Sardinia uh, in July, um, and then it uh, uh, races to Car, and then after that it races in South America toward the end of the year in uh, Chile and uh, in Brazil. Uh, so three different kinds of racing from the building in, in Indianapolis. Uh, so <laughs> a lot of activity. So where is the Ford GT program? I'm a big IMSA guy, and of course, you know, when you guys won 2016, uh, kind of recreating, you know, 50 years of Ford winning Le Mans 24-hour, one, two, three, where does that program stand now? Uh, that program uh, ran from 2016 to 2019. We ran uh, the car that won Le Mans in 2016 was one of the cars that ran in the IMSA one of the two cars that run in the, ran in the IMSA series in 2016, 17, 18, 19. We also had a, an English, uh, English-based team in the WEC series, in the WEC championship, ran two cars in that series also. They converged together at Le Mans for four years. So we had four entries at Le Mans for four years in a row. Uh, those cars ended, uh, Ford's involvement ended in 2019, they stopped uh, stopped racing in both championships then, and uh, we stepped away from IMSA until two years ago when we began again with Cad- the Cadillac program in DPI in the proto- prototype category. That program will roll into the new series for prototype racing that's a global series called LMDH. All new cars, all new engines, hybrid a hybrid program, uh, hybrid-powered uh, 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 V8 Cadillac engines uh, beginning uh, next year. When when you and I met and we were talking um, at Amelia Island this year, we were talking a little bit about where racing is going. Um, and we were kind of like on... Uh, now, I'm not... An, uh, 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 an electric car fan, but we were talking about 
technology is moving in that direction. So the question I had, I guess, was kind of like, is in the old days, it was like, uh, win on Sunday, sell on Monday, you know, the racing thing. And a lot of over the years, we all know that racing is kind of like a test bed for production car development. Would you say that still holds true for today and where you're going? Because now if you're getting involved with an all-electric car and you go to that little bitty little island out there in the Mediterranean there, the uh, or just outside of it, Sardinia, which is kind of odd, but it's an interesting island, um, and some of those other places that you're going to be racing, obviously the, the Dakar, that which is North Africa, um, and you're doing the electric car, So and then you're doing the hybrids, is that really where we're going? I mean, are we going to say goodbye to internal combustion engines and we're going to be moving in that direction 100%? I mean, do you have, you as a racing team, do you have insight from the manufacturers where they're going, where they're, where they're going with this in the next uh, five to 10 years? Well, with four, you know, with four wheel racing, uh, since the early 1900s in the United States and globally, all. Uh, cars that have raced have raced uh, what the car manufacturing companies, uh, a version of the engines and cars for that matter, really, uh, have raced what the car manufacturing companies have produced. Uh, so those have been uh, uh, internal co- combustion engines for years, uh, for lots of years. Uh, today, it's slowly moving toward hybrid and electric vehicles in motor racing, hybrid assist or electric or electric assist engines. Uh, what we do is we race electric engines uh, in our Hummer-powered cars uh, that are electric in uh, the Extreme E series. Beginning in 2023, we will race uh, V8 Cadillac engines that have hybrid assist which they sell or will sell in their showrooms. Um, and in 2024, we are a Honda-powered uh, series in the IndyCar series, uh, and that will be, in 24, will be uh, B6 twin-turbocharged engines that are hybrid assist. Um, so I, I think that's not unusual for, for what racing has done for as long as all of us have known it, can remember it generationally. Um, and uh, let's face it, the, uh, the car company companies that we uh, understand and know about, uh, both in the United States or North America as well as uh, globally, uh, are going to represent the bridge that's being created by the car companies towards the future. Some of that bridge is electric. Some of that bridge is, is hybrid. But what it is 5, 10, 15, 20 years from today, um, the people that follow us and our families will will be, be driving a version of that streetcar, whatever it might be. Um, and that's still up to not only the car companies, but frankly, the the governments of all the countries around the world are helping to define for the car companies what it is that they're going to be able or what they can sell. And that's what we're going to be racing. When, so when you, so you just mentioned Cadillac, you mentioned hybrid, you mentioned uh, fully electric. 
Um, you mentioned Honda. So you're talking 2022, which we're in right now, 2023, 2024. Within your organization, how does the planning process work as far as – do you, are you involved in any of that decision-making or are you involved primarily with the racing and where, uh, and, and the, and the three divisions and where they're going? I, I think uh, race teams are integrated into what the car manufacturer companies do is moving forward. Yes, we are part of the process, um, uh, in, in the United States for Honda, they have a, a an R&D division, uh, an engine development division called Honda Performance Development, HPD. Uh, they develop uh, the racing engines for American Honda, which uh, American Honda next year are going to bring out uh, uh, several models, models of cars uh, or more models of cars that have hybrid assist uh, with their, with their engine, engine technology. We will be racing those cars in IndyCar rating in uh, 24 for them. Uh, in uh, 23, the Cadillac division will have the same. We will be racing those engines with hybrid assist uh, for sports car racing, uh, both in the United States as well as overseas. Uh, so we are, yes, part of that uh, uh, engine development program, uh, and they will uh, be... Uh, based upon production-based engine packages that uh, will be sold in the showrooms going forward. Um, to the, and, uh, racing those is going to be really exciting uh, because they'll, the, they'll, you know, they will uh, 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 be integrated power plants. Uh, it's going to actually be a lot of fun. Do the manufacturers come to you, or do you go to the manufacturers? How does that typically work? Because people always wonder that. They think, well, you know, if I'm going to be racing this year with Ford or Honda or Toyota, um, I'm out there basically selling myself to the manufacturer, or does the manufacturer say, we know that Tenassi Racing has got a, a, a spectacular, successful track record. We will contact consult and hire them to do our, our racing programs for the for us and our additional development um off our initial development of our racing engines is that how that how it basically works back yeah factory support factory involvement uh in uh is is a uh partner program with uh, oems with car companies car manufacturing companies uh, and has been well, and let, we could just talk about any car racing for a minute. Uh, uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was originally a test track for the uh, for the car companies, and uh, you know they first uh, two people rode in a car in the Indian Indianapolis 500, and then and then one driver did it, uh, and uh, the car companies, a lot of them had. Uh, uh, facilities in Indianapolis to where they prepared their cars and then took them to the speedway, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, just to test cars. That's what they did when the fight, when the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was bricks. Uh, those car companies had, had uh, facilities in Indy. Um, and it's still that way. Now what happens is they have race teams that are based in Indy that race Indy cars. Uh, in similar fashion, 
the race teams have uh, uh, factory-supported car manufacturing, factory-supported sports car programs, uh, GT cars, prototype cars, and so on. And those are, are not only housed and raced in the United States, but also raced abroad, raced globally. Um, so I don't think there's really anything different, uh, Robert, that, that goes on today in motor racing that didn't go on in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, in, in car racing. Uh, let's face it, uh, uh, race teams, large, medium, and small, pair up or, or partner up with uh, car companies and the tire companies, for that matter, in combination to, to race race the cars within the divisions of motor racing. Well, I guess the reason I ask that question is because, you know, the question of sponsorship always comes in, and you hear this. Well, the racing team's not working this year because they didn't get enough sponsorship uh, money to fund them. But then on the other hand, the really, really good teams like yourself and, uh, um, you know, like you said, they you, you team up with a manufacturer, and but the manufacturer does that because they know that you have that that track record and you're capable of taking their product if you will okay in this case we're talking racing engines or their cars to the next level to to basically uh podium finishes um and that's and that is true um that's a constant and has been for a long long time uh, we have represented over the years for us, while I worked for Chip, Chip Ganassi Racing, while I've worked there, we've represented Honda, we've represented Toyota, we've, we, we've, we've represented different brands uh, for General Motors, uh, Cadillac, Chevrolet, uh, GMC, uh, So and, and uh, other race teams have done it done exactly the same thing no matter where they've been based or where they've raced uh so it's uh, a combination of what the sanctioning body uh wants the formula to be what the car companies are are doing with it with their engine supply programs um and the engine builders within um i think that's a constant no matter what the engine technology has been through the years Interesting. I have a, uh, a, a, a question here from a listener, um, Thomas Fraley, uh-huh. and it says, Mike, obviously all the Canassi cars had a great pace this year. Can you elaborate on the specific areas that you concentrated on to develop the cars? And then he goes, I promise I'll keep this a secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thomas, that's a terrific question. Um, and, uh, uh, a lot of the development today is is certainly partnered up. Uh, the tires are 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 developed when we begin at uh, Indianapolis or at an IndyCar racing racetrack, wherever it might be in the United States, or in this, or for that matter, we're going to be go we're going to go back to Canada this year. We're actually uh, we're not COVID free, but we're somewhat COVID proof, so we can race in Toronto this year. We can go back where we raced. I think the first IndyCar race in Toronto was in 1985. Uh, at ex- Exhibition Place in downtown Toronto. Um, what goes on today with development is uh, a lot of uh, componentry that's involved in reducing friction. Uh, software development has allowed us to be able to define very clearly how much power, how much, how much, what friction redu- 
with what friction, what mechanical friction reduction does in the suspension, in the chassis, and in the engine to increase horsepower. It's no different than what uh, uh, car companies do today to work on their EPA development because what they do is they work on friction reduction to increase uh, fuel mileage very clearly. So what you see, if you go to a Honda dealership and you buy a Honda Accord, let's just use that as a model, uh, a, a, a model that's sold, um, it has all the trim that you visually see around the front of the car, all the air ducting. If you crawl under the car and look at it, it's very aerodynamic these days underneath. There's a massive development that goes on these days with street vehicles like Hondas or like Cadillacs uh, for not only the, the top side, the frontal area, the side areas, all the ducting, as well as the lower part of the car to that enhances uh, uh, how much... What, what your fuel, uh, what your mile per gallon number might actually be. Uh, so if you look at a 2020 model, and let's just say for the sake of our discussion today, it got 20 miles per gallon, the same model today has to increase by federal standards as to the fuel mileage has to increase by 2.5% per year. So the same model car today is 5 to 7% better than it was just two model years ago. Uh, and we will work on very, very similar things today with our race cars. We work a lot uh, to become more efficient in the air and more efficient mechanically uh, to uh, make the car much more efficient than what, what we ever did before. It used to be in motor racing that we had new tires from Firestone or Goodyear, depending on who we were labeled up with or partnered with, and that created a lot of speed. Uh, today, we have one tire manufacturer, uh, which still works really, really hard to work on in that area. But uh, we don't have tire development like we used to have, grippy, grippy tires, uh, to help us go faster. So today, we, we have to work much, much harder on aero, uh, the aero efficiency and mechanical efficiency of our race cars. Uh, it might be similar. Some of the people who are listening today or tonight, depending on where they listen to this, pro- what time they listen, the time zone for this program, uh, they probably play golf. And uh, some of them do. And guess what? They aren't using golf balls from five or ten years ago. They're they're they're, they're using Callaway or Titleist golf balls today <clears throat> that are much better than they used to be. They're much more efficient in the air. And so our race cars are the same. They're much more efficient in the air. And uh, that's where the development really is today. So to answer the question, uh, a lot of the things that make us faster are somewhat held close to the vest by the race team. Okay, great. Now, Mike, Tom has another question, and it goes like this. If you could write, and I think you quasi-answered this a little bit earlier, but let's go with this. If you could write the script, for the next generation of indie cars, tell us what they would look like and how they would be powered, and who would race them, and where would we race them. <laughs> that's a four-part question. You know, yeah, that's 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 a great question, Tom. 
Uh, I think you'll find that uh, with Mr. Penske uh, now owning the IndyCar series, that it will most likely be a time zone driven series, which means mostly in North America, Central and South America, if it expands to other places to race, because he his, his, he wants that product to be available to the consumer that loves IndyCar racing in the time zone where they live, which is uh, Pacific, Central, and East, the Eastern time zone, number one. And so that might help to answer your question about where we will race. Uh, okay. In terms of uh, the cars themselves, I think you're going to find that the cars will still be uh, uh, liveried and and uh, driven. The, the wheels will be driven by uh, car companies that want to be involved in IndyCar racing. Presently, those are Chevrolet and Honda. Uh, Mr. Penske is working really, really hard to have at least one additional car company, uh, another brand, uh, on the engine technology side of the cars. And in terms of the cars themselves, um, I think they will represent uh, the environmentally sensitive issues that we have going forward in terms of the development of the cars. Uh However, those would be defined going forward. We race what's called spec cars, and we have for quite a lot of for for a long time in IndyCar car racing. They're presently designed and developed by the Delara company. Uh, I think we'll probably, in some way or other, be involved in the future development of the cars. Uh, but I think that uh, the speed the speeds will still increase depending on the safety characteristics of the cars. Um, with the uh, with the hybrid electric technology for the, from the engine company, so I think it's a combination of all of those things. Firestone, as an example, are going to, are going to introduce a more green, a more environmentally uh, sensitive tire going forward as we go on through this year and into next year. Um, so I think you'll see a lot of those things uh, being uh, uh, developed and produced uh, for the IndyCar Championship. I have a question from Dustin. Now, Dustin, I'm going to take a wild guess here. Um, it's probably he's probably young and he's a racing enthusiast. And his question goes like this: um, Today's drivers, you know, it's kind of like you see this in a lot of sports. Okay, that people are basically kind of cultured as children and five, six years old, we're in go-karts or five, six years old, we're playing golf or five, six years old, we're playing tennis. So Dustin's question was this, that, well, I'm 17, 18 years old right now and I want to get into racing, but because I didn't start when I was five or six years old, do I still have a chance to get into the professional racing down the road? In other words, what he, I guess what he's saying is because it seems like, you know, everybody's like, um, and I see this a lot. I mean, people are basically kind of, you know, as as children, they're predetermined. I'm going to be a professional golfer. I'm going to be a professional athlete. I'm going to be a professional whatever. But and so there's people that, you know, and, and you know, not a lot of people can make up their mind what they want to do. But, you know, they, they, they suddenly at a later age, at a teenage or even in their early 20s, they start taking a big interest in it and they go, hey. Can I become a professional, uh, let's say, motorsports person, driver, 
um, even though I, I haven't been doing this all my life as a kid. Word. So when you guys, I guess this question is also, if you're looking for a driver, do you think just because the guy started when he was five years old, he's going to be that much better a uh, driver than someone that's, that's, let's say, started racing when they're in their teens and their early 20s? Because some of you drivers uh, are 22 and 23 years old on your team. So they and they've been racing for a while. A lot, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great question, Dustin. Um, I mean, it's a terrific question. But I think the way I look at it, uh, the way I look at it presently is, is athletes in all sports do start younger at a younger age. It doesn't mean though that they do it their entire life. It just means they start at a younger age, whether it be baseball, basketball, soccer, football, golf motor racing, and you could go on tennis, you could go on and on and on. Both males and females start now these days at a, at a, at a much younger age. Uh, that's because, really, there's more available to them today in greater volume than there used to be generationally. If you went up, up the scale with people that are now 20, 30, 40 years old, their, their generation just didn't start an athletic uh athletic endeavor until they were maybe, you know, wherever they were at that point in time based on the generation. Uh, it also means they may stop much earlier. <laughs> they may not go on. Um, and so it, there's room for people to start at any age. They're not excluded. Uh, they aren't disallowed to be able to do it. It's more about them finding their way in when their passion is, is fueled. Uh, the use of uh, a world of a word that we use in motor racing. So, if you're 20 years old today and you want to start motor racing, you can find your way in. You would still have to to start though in some level at a, at a formative level, whatever that formative level might be that you find that you utilize to get yourself going, uh, man. But if today, if you go to a karting whether it be a regional karting event or a national championship level event karting, there's a lot of young people, males and females, that are competing against each other today, learning how to race with each other or against each other, uh, much more so than there was when people like me started. You know, when I'm, I'm certainly considered to be an ancient person now by a lot of people's generational standards, but when I was racing as a young kid, even at my, at, I'm, I'm 70 years old now. I've been in racing. I have worked in racing or raced cars myself as a young person. I, I've been in racing for 55 years. So that means I started when I was 15. Uh, I actually started myself. I started racing USAC midgets when I was 14. Uh, so uh, today, kids are starting when they're five, six, seven years old. On a on a regional basis, some form of racing, whether it be two or four wheels, and uh, they progress through. So by the time they're 15 years old or 16 years old, they already have 10, 11, 12 years of uh, racing experience under their belts. Um, and guess what they find out? They find out if they have the ability to get it done. <laughs> if they don't have the ability, they either take on another sport or they start watching uh, by climbing, you know, hold on to the fence. Um, so the the value that the good thing I suppose about that is that is they've already experienced what I wasn't able to experience until I was in my mid twenties. 
so I think the generations being younger and being certainly supported by the families in a different manner today with sports compared to when I was involved. Our parents were near involved, as near involved in any athletic activity when I was growing up as parents are now. Um, and that's a real advantage to young kids today. Uh, Richard has a question here. What do you look for in a driver and who determines who your driver is going to, in other words, with the new organization, what do you look for, for a driver and who ultimately determines who's going to be that driver? Who makes that decision? Great question, Richard. Yeah, it's a, Richard, that's a great question. Um, we, what we look for at Chickenassi Racing, besides the, the obvious, the obvious is ability, talent, and the, and certainly the, the ability to win. So we look for, we look at drivers at the level where we hire of drivers who already have won. The word if in a driver's vocabulary shouldn't happen at our level. In other words, if they say, if this would have happened, I would have won. If I could have done this, this would have happened. If this, if this, if this. They, on their resume, or they, by what they've already done, they've already won races. They've already won championships, whether it be at the karting level, uh, the intermediate level of racing, or even toward the end of the highest level of motor racing. They've already, we don't have to teach them how to win. That's huge for us. Uh, it's hard to explain to somebody who's never won what it takes to win. Uh, but uh, winning is certainly very, very important, number one. Number two, they don't come with baggage. They just want to race cars. They don't have a huge entourage. Uh, they, don't have all, they don't have all of the, you know, they don't have a publicist, 10 managers, <laughs> frankly, all the things. <clears throat> they just want to win races, and they're ready to go. And uh, they're very, and number three, they're very, very unselfish. Uh, they, they, by saying that, maybe the simple uh, definition is they remember where they came from. And uh, frankly, all they care about then is uh, making the most out of race day for the team, not just for themselves. And then they can, they can unselfishly share with their teammates. The teammates we had in, in the Indianapolis 500 this year, the five drivers we had, worked hard for all five drivers uh, among themselves so those five drivers could win. Look what happened in the race for us. Scott Dixon led uh, almost half the race. He had, a, he had a problem coming in the pits. He sped, and so he had to, to be put all the way to the back of the field uh, by speeding, by having a speeding penalty, did that stop our team? No. All the information that he had was being transmitted by telemetry to the other four timing stands. The, the stands are the people that call the race for each of the respective drivers. They shared all that information uh, equally among them. Uh, Alex Pillow, his teammate, was swapping the lead back and forth with him he had a problem. He got a penalty, and he had to go to the back of the pack. Uh, but they, their information was continue, continually utilized by Jimmy Johnson, Marcus Erickson, and Tony Kanaan. Uh, when Scott and Alex fell out of the race, Kanaan and uh, Erickson 
were toward the front. Uh, by the time we were 50 laps to go in the race, Erickson was at the front. Tony was right. Be- Tony Kanan was right behind him. Uh, they raced to the end. They ended up first and third in the race, u- utilizing each other's information. That has a lot to do with uh, being successful. We share all the information, and those are the kinds of people that we want to hire, drivers that are willing to share enough information or all the information with their teammates to where it doesn't... That's such a resource that you normally don't have, even on a lot of race teams with teammates. You'd be surprised at how many teams teammates will not share that information with their teammates. On our team, we, we look for people that are willing to do that. Um, and you saw the results of Indy. You saw the results of Indy this year in qualifying. Uh, first and second, uh, let's see, uh, first and second, fourth and fifth on the grid there. Jimmy Johnson qualified 12th with the information that he was given. Um, so that's what we look for. Um, and, uh, uh it makes a huge difference in motivation today to have people that want to do that will do that. When you were racing back in the day, and I know I've interviewed countless guys. I mean, the Dan Gurney's of the world, the Roger Penske's himself, mm-hmm. um, the 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 Parnelli Joneses, the Mario Andretti's. Every one of those guys, including yourself, wrenched on the cars, knew how the car worked. From, from all aspects. So when you're driving, which you drove too, you have this certain feedback. Ah, the car's doing this. The car's doing that. Today's drivers don't do that. It's all technical. It's all data. It's all you basically collect that information when they drive. It's transmitted back to you immediately, like real time. Do you? Does it matter today that the drivers don't have that that experience that you had back in the? I mean, you know that hands-on experience that you had back in the day. I mean, drivers like yourself. I, I think it's important that they do have that knowledge, and uh, uh, no matter what the decade or generation might be, drivers coming through the system still should have, and a lot of them do have a great mechanical aptitude about what's going on with the race car. Uh, if, if, a, if a driver is so uh, sheltered from working on their own cart, their own go-kart, or their own uh, Formula Ford 2000 car, or their own K&N stock car, or whatever it might be as they come through the system, if they're so sheltered and so spoiled that somebody else works on their on their race car all the time, when they get to the highest level, the lack of understanding of what their race car does because they've never worked on a car will hinder them. Okay. The difference with what you may be referring to today is more the the uh, the, the software, the uh, that part of the system that uh, uh, is managed uh, by other people on their race team. But what does happen is productive race car drivers today who have the knowledge of the mechanical side of the race car, and then they combine that with spending the time to understand the data overlay of what their race car does and understand the mechanical side of the race car. 
are the kinds of drivers that drive our race cars today. They do understand how that's all put together. And then what they do with teammates is they study what their teammates' uh, uh, data stream is doing. So they can then compare lap to lap or corner to corner how they overlay from one to the other. And what that then does is that shows them if what you do, let's say putting this in layman's terms, is what you do with that data stream is you work backwards from the exit of the corner to how you enter the corner with that data overlay, yours first laid on top of theirs. Now, sometimes you might watch, like NASCAR does a really good job with their television production. I'm fascinated when I get to watch. I don't get to watch a lot of NASCAR races because I'm working on on the weekend somewhere else where when they're racing. But occasionally I'll watch a NASCAR broadcast or rebroadcast of qualifying. And they'll show a digital image of, let's say, Chase, uh, Chase overlaid uh, maybe with Logano. Uh, and uh, you'll see where they are in the corner. You'll see how they compare in the corner. You'll even see where they are in the corner to, to the other drivers, particularly in qualifying. They do a really good, good job of showing that. That's what we do. We have that same information when we're comparing driver to driver. And you'd be surprised that uh, you might think it, it, it is oftentimes the same, the same speed, but the, but the small speed difference is what we look for uh, as they're arcing the corner to get to the exit of the corner. Um, and, uh, you know, and the steering effort, you know, how much steering they're putting into it. Uh, you can learn a lot with data overlay uh, by one driver the way they turn the front, the way that they take care of the front wheels or the way they slide the car. Uh, some drivers drive with a lot less friction as they approach the exit of the corner, which means they're going to be faster exiting that corner and down that straightaway before they enter another corner than another driver. Um, so those are the things that they look for as drivers when they're out of the car. So, yeah, they might not turn wrenches all day long, but they certainly turn the, uh, the mental wrenches uh, to understand how to be faster. We have a few minutes left. Uh, you're you're a real car guy too. So in your stable at home, in your spare time, you know that that little bit of spare time that you have, do you uh, have a collector car or a hobby car that you play with? <laughs> I, I have had collector cars. Um, you know, I. When I was growing up, I wanted to have uh, uh, Shelby Musca Mustangs when I was growing up in the 60s. I, I couldn't afford to buy one. Uh, but uh, after I started earning a bit of money and stopped racing cars, when I was uh, moved from the, the phase of young and dumb and racing to <laughs> working on cars, <laughs> uh, I, I owned uh, three Shelby Mustangs from the 60s, 65, 66, all original cars. And, oh wow! Uh, then what I figured out was I, I loved the cars. I loved driving them, uh, and they were all original. You know, matching numbers, everything, untouched by human by anything. They weren't at that point restored cars. They were original cars. I loved those cars. But then what happened was Bear Jackson came along, and what happened with Bear Jackson wasn't the fact that I took cars to Bears to sell. Bear Jackson drove those prices up, those values up. Into, into, you know, low or mid-six-figure numbers. And now a guy like me, I, now it became uh, a collector car. It had value. 
I was afraid to leave the thing in a parking lot to get door dings or running into somebody or somebody running into me to reduce the value. So guess what I did? I just sold the cars because I was, I was no longer driving them. Um, and uh, then I bought a couple of, uh, of uh, movie, you know, uh, bullet cars, you know, that were every 10 years Ford made the bullet car. I, I owned a t- 2008, was, which was absolutely a beautiful car. And in 2008, if you bought one brand new, I didn't buy a new about a year after or two years after. Uh, they just, at that time, they just did everything right. They were really fun to drive. I had a Zanardi NSX. When we won the championship with the Alex Zanardi in 1997, they made a 98 version of the Zanardi NSX. They made 50 of those cars. That car, when would in second gear, would go 100 miles an hour. In wow. the top of uh, sixth gear, it went 175, 180 miles an hour on the street. Uh, of course, I would never admit that I ever went that fast in the car, but it did go that fast. And uh, Mike, we, Mike, 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 uh, Mike, we are up against the clock here. Um, can we do this real quick? Okay. Can we pick up this and do part two next week? Are you? A- uh, yeah, we're going to organize it. Be happy to do it with you guys. Uh, uh, between your schedule and on my schedule, I'm sure we could figure out how to make it happen. All right, he put him. He put himself on hold, but that's okay. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. <laughs> WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen. This is CBS News on the